Uh, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for holding us fast. And Lord, we pray that you would meet with us in this time. And Lord, that you would speak loudly and clearly through your word this morning. May it be an encouragement to us, Lord, to go out and continue in the midst of whatever difficulties we might be facing. Lord, may we remain faithful as you have been so faithful to us. Lord, we pray that you would bless this time as we look into your word. May we be encouraged and edified and strengthened and built up in our faith. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you turn with me to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. One of the most beautiful passages in all of Scripture is Romans chapter 8. Um, our Old Testament and New Testament reading are the picture of the gospel, beginning and, and to the end. And Romans chapter 8 is kind of a summary that Paul gives us right in the midst of Scripture and so beautifully lays out for us the gospel. Some have called it the gospel in a nutshell. And uh, we're going to look at this morning verses 18 through 30. Uh, I won't read them all at once at this time. We'll read them as we go through. But what we're going to see this morning, I hope, is three truths that will encourage us in suffering with Christ. Three truths that will encourage us in suffering with Christ. And that's where we'll be going this morning. But if you've never had the privilege of going to Plymouth, Massachusetts, to see the famed rock that the pilgrims did not step on, when they first landed at Plymouth. But to see the famous rock that apparently William Bradford carved 1620 on, if you've never been there, you won't know that it's in a large enclosure, protected so that nobody can touch it. It's actually just a piece of the rock because they've moved it many times and broken it into pieces and Sorry to dash all your hopes about what you might see when you get there. But it's right there on the coast of Plymouth Har Harbor in this large enclosure, you see the rock. You can look over, I believe it's to the left, and you can see the remake of the Mayflower and take a tour of that. But it's what's behind you. I've been to Plymouth, I don't know how many times. We lived within a half hour's drive. And so many times I went, and it's, it's, it's almost... You live somewhere and you don't necessarily take advantage of what's there. And uh, six years ago, this week, we moved to Louisville, Kentucky. And that year, we did more stuff in Massachusetts than we ever done in the entire, however old I was then, years uh, before we moved here. 34, I guess. Um, and we did a lot in Plymouth. And one of the things that I had never noticed before was this large monument. If you turn around from Plymouth Rock, on the top of Coles Hill is a very large, impressive, imposing monument sitting there. 
And I said, I wonder what that is. So we went to the top of the hill, and it's a monument that marks the lesser known and original burial site of many of the original settlers. See, as we get to Thanksgiving and we celebrate this time of year, we often see the happy, plump pilgrims that are, you know, enjoying their Thanksgiving feast. When in reality, those first few years and especially those first few months were very difficult. Those first few months almost catastrophic for this band of pilgrims. They all came here looking for a better way, a way that they believed would better honor God in their worship. They wanted to be able to worship God freely. And we would think such a good desire would be met with nothing but great success. When they arrive and step on shore, there's fields of corn and all kinds of abundance for them, right? The true story is that when they arrive in 1620 and they first land on Cape Cod in November and decide that it's not a suitable place to live, so they move further inland, they finally get off the ship in December, right in time for winter. You think it's bad here. They faced a brutal winter, and due to the more than two-month voyage, along with the additional about a month and a half time in which they lived on the ship while they were settling on shore, in the first few months, it is estimated that upwards of 50 of the 102 first pilgrims died. Half of their number would perish. They died at such a rate that there were so few who were well enough to care for them. To bury the dead, they could hardly keep up. It's estimated that as few as seven never got sick. And all they could do was labor as best they could to care for the sick and bury the dead. And they had to be careful in how they did that because there were Indians. And they didn't want the Indians to know how depleted their ranks were becoming. And so very often at the cover of darkness, they buried them in these graves upon Cole's Hill. Not exactly the fairy tale ending we'd expect on, on embarking on a voyage for such a good and noble reason. Why did they suffer so much? Have you ever found yourself asking that question in your life? Why am I suffering right now? Why am I suffering so much? I think I am safe to assume I'm not the only one who answers yes to that question. But if we're honest with ourselves as believers, we have to admit that we know Christian life's not guaranteed to be easy. Yes, there are lots of false teachers out there who will give you a false sense of hope and a false promise that this is all going to be okay, just do these good things and everything's great. And you'll read all their books, Seven Steps to Happiness and Six Steps to Joy and whatever it might be. 
But the truth of Scripture is that we live in a dying world, in a cursed and fallen world. And that sacrifice and suffering is necessary for it to be all made new. The Bible gives us plenty of instruction on this point, talking about how it's the righteous that are persecuted. As we saw not too long ago in 2 Timothy, that it's those who desire to live godly will be persecuted. There's plenty of examples of suffering that go throughout Scripture. And while those are hard and difficult things that we'd rather ignore, I don't think the best thing for us is to try to ignore them. And while we can't really prepare ourselves for suffering, there are things that we can do to be better prepared when suffering does come. And I hope we'll hit on those this morning. One of the things that the Bible almost always includes when it touches on this subject, it almost always includes great hope and encouragement for us when it talks about suffering and trials. And for context, we read the the two verses preceding our text this morning as the call to worship. But the first 17 verses of Romans 8, Paul spends time focusing on what life in the Spirit is all about. What it is to be justified and adopted children of God. And how, as children, we're fellow heirs with Jesus. That's provided that we suffer with him so that we can be glorified with him. We love Romans 8. We love verse 1. We love everything up to verse 16. We love verse 28. And even verses 31 through 39. We ought to love it all. All the way up to verse 17... We're all on board, all the way up through halfway through verse 17. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, period. Right? End of story. Let's leave it there. No, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Verses 18 and 30 follow this for a reason, because they give us three rock-solid truths that are meant to encourage us, that are meant to strengthen our faith in the face of the suffering that we will face. The first one is, our suffering can't be compared with the glory that's to follow. Our suffering can't be compared with the glory to follow. The second one is the fact that the Spirit helps us in our weakness. And third, we see that all things work together for good for those who love God. Those are the three truths we'll focus on this morning. And if we look 
We see the first one, our suffering can't be compared with the glory to follow, clearly stated in verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For those who are in Christ, we are never left without hope. Among Jesus' last words to his disciples were basically the message of, it's going to be hard, it's going to be difficult, you're going to face trials and tribulations. But you can have peace, you can take heart, because I've overcome the world. No matter what the world will do to you, I've overcome the world. And Paul is giving a similar message here to show us how we can live and experience the sufferings with Christ. And the first thing that we know, the first thing that we hold true is that they're not worth comparing with what's to come. Does that make them any less hard or difficult? No. Nobody's minimizing the suffering that you might be experiencing right now or that you've gone through or that you will go through. But remember that it's not worth comparing with what is to come. The great glory that is to come. Paul also calls our suffering elsewhere light and momentary. When you compare it with what is eternal, it's light and momentary. These are truths that we need to hold on to so that they are called to remembrance when we do suffer. I can remember when we lost uh, a child. I tried to go to work the next day. And I can remember trying to walk to the class that I was going to teach. I remember having a coworker come up to me and ask me how I was doing, and I can remember breaking down and crying. Because it was hard. And I can remember him saying, I'll cover your class, go home. I didn't go home, but I went upstairs to my office, and I remember remembering 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 12 and Paul's thorn in the flesh. And that Paul wanted that removed, but he prayed. And what did he hear? But that God's grace was sufficient. And when I remembered the sufficiency of God's grace in that time, I'll never forget the feeling of peace that passed over me. Did it take away the pain? No. But the knowledge that God's grace was sufficient to help me even in that moment was what I needed. Would I much rather at that moment still have had a healthy pregnancy in my wife? <laughs> yeah. My son wanted us to drive to heaven to go get him. <laughs> of course I wanted that. But that suffering isn't compared with what's eternal. That suffering's not compared with that eternal weight of glory that's being prepared for us and that is ready and waiting for us. 
Because not only is it not worth comparing, Paul elaborates here in verses 18 all the way down through verse 25, and we have this language in which he's referring to in our text. It's not only worth comparing to the glory, but we see that all of creation is eagerly longing for this day. What are they longing for? For the creation waits, in verse 19, with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself will be set free from the bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. He's giving us this picture. We read from Genesis chapter 3. Mike read our Old Testament reading. This is why, because in that picture we're, we're shown the curse that is put on the world because of sin. We're shown the curse that is applied to the world because of sin. It's not just going to bring up beautiful flowers. I plant things and weeds grow, right? Thorns. There's a curse that has been placed in this world, and the world from that moment onward has been groaning for release. They're longing for the glorification of the saints in which Christ returns to make all things new. We read this because as a result of the fall of man, all of creation was subjected to the curse. But what Paul tells us here is that it was subjected in hope. Because in the midst of what Mike read, we had the remembrance that Jesus isn't going to leave us there. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly shall you go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. And he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. He subjected it in hope. The curse came down, but there was hope that this wasn't going to be how it would end. He goes on and talks to the woman and to Adam. And we see in the end of all things, a sacrifice is made and the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed him. What hope do we find He sacrifices these animals and clothes them and takes care of them. God didn't destroy the world at the fall. He didn't destroy the world, but he subjected it to the curse in hope for a better day. Leaving the world in hope of a day when the creation itself would see its release from the bondage that it's under, and all things would be made new. Similar to the day that we read about, that Colin read in Revelation 21, that day when there will be no more weeping, when 
Jesus will wipe away every tear. There'll be no more death or dying. Because he's making all things new. All creation groans for this day. But we see as he continues in this passage, in verse 22... For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. God's people are also eagerly waiting for this day. We desire this day. I'm sure there's days where we go through the day or we wake up and say, come Lord Jesus. We desire that glorification. Not only the creation, but those who have the first fruits of the Spirit. The saints are groaning together as we await the adoption that is to come, the glorification of our bodies. Paul speaking here of the fact that, yes, we are adopted, but there's the sense in which there is more to come. There is that already and not yet. We are children of God, but we have not yet experienced the fullness of that adoption state, and we won't until Christ returns. And it's in that hope that we wait, it's that hope in which we were saved. We weren't saved because someone promised us an easy life. We didn't believe just simply because if you do this, I'll give you a cookie. It's in the hope that this isn't it. That this isn't the end. It's in the hope that this world isn't all there is for us. It's the hope of glory. It's not in anything that we've seen. You, talk, you hear people talk, I'm probably getting close to that, the good old days. You hear them talk about the good old days. Back in the day when life seemed simpler. It might not seem simpler because you were just a kid and didn't have any responsibilities. It wasn't necessarily any simpler for your parents. But we always have this vision. Let's go back to when. Well, as Christians, let's go forward. Let's long for what's so much better. It's not for anything we've seen. We're not going to see any politician come along who's going to be what we can put our hope in. It's not going to happen. This world is not where our hope lies. It's in Christ. And it's in the hope that we have in waiting for him. It's not in anything we've seen, but what we have not seen. What we have not yet seen, what has not yet come, that's what true hope is. 
And that's why we wait with patience, because of the peace that we have in Christ. We can experience hard times, we can experience suffering, we can experience whatever it is that life brings our way, and we can wait for it with patience because we know Christ. And there's a peace that attends knowing him that enables us to endure suffering. The suffering that you're experiencing now does not compare to the glory that we know is coming. We can't even fathom how good it's going to be. Because we've tasted this greater glory, we in all of creation are now longing for the day in which it's fulfilled, the day of its completion. And it's that hope in which we rest and we continue to live in the midst of our pain, in the midst of our suffering. Pain's part of the curse. He said that work would require sweating. It means it's hard. It's especially hard if I try it. Pain is part of it. It's something that we should expect. But the hope we have in Christ tells us in our pain that it's only a temporary and passing thing. We can keep going and we can still groan and we can long for the return of Jesus Christ and all of that is good. But we remember that in our pain, it's temporary and passing and a greater glory is to come. As we move on, we see in verses 26 and 27 that the second encouragement we have, the second truth that we need to hold on to as we suffer with Christ is that the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Verses 26 and 27 read, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Not only do we have great hope and promise that the suffering is not worth comparing to the glory that's to come, but we also have the Holy Spirit's help in our weakness. And we must admit, when we are in pain, we feel weak. In the previous chapter, Paul talks about a struggle that we have against our indwelling sin. And when you take that struggle and you combine it with the suffering that we experience, it often leaves us feeling weak. Sometimes we feel alone helpless, maybe times at our darkest times, hopeless or uncertain at the least. These are feelings that we don't like and we'd much rather avoid them if we possibly could. But none of us are immune can't give you an anecdote 
There's no specific exercise or diet to help avoid suffering for the sake of Christ. Peter tells us we're not supposed to be surprised at the fiery trials that come. And it's interesting, when Peter writes it, he tells us that we're not supposed to be surprised when it happens. It's not if. And he tells us, as he continues, that we ought to rejoice as we share in the sufferings of Christ. To count it a joy to be one deemed faithful enough to suffer. To rejoice in the face of our sufferings. And while that may not be easy, and it definitely isn't, and it often isn't the first response or reaction we might have to our sufferings, even Paul first prayed for his difficulty to be removed. He asked for the thorn in his flesh to go away. We're human. We still fight with our old nature, but Paul's here telling us Spirit's there to help. You're not alone. You're not left to your own devices. It's not up to you to figure out how best to treat this or to get, up, get through this or to have it end because ultimately the end of the trial is not the goal. Conformity to Christ through the trial is the goal. That's what we're, we're striving for. Paul's telling us the Spirit's here to help. We are not alone. Our ultimate future, there is no uncertainty. And when we are at a loss for how to pray, when our prayers are reduced to inarticulate groanings, essentially, because we don't know the best way to pray, Well, then the Spirit intercedes for us. And the Heavenly Father, who knows the mind of the Spirit, the Heavenly Father, who searches hearts, he hears the Spirit interceding. And while we don't understand what the Spirit is praying, and while it may not be what we would initially pray for. The Spirit intercedes for us, and the Spirit always prays according to the will of God. His desire for us is always in line with God's perfect will. The Spirit prays for what we need, which isn't always the same thing as what we want. And that's why Paul can respond the way he does in 2 Corinthians 12. He pleads three times for his thorn to be removed. And when he's told God's grace is sufficient, he says, I will rather boast in my weakness. Because when he is weak, that's when he's strong because the power of Christ rests upon him we can go along with Paul and boast in our weakness as we find God always faithful and his grace always sufficient. Christian, 
When you find yourself at a loss for what to say or how you ought to pray, turn to Romans 8. Preach this passage to yourself over and over again. Commit these promises to memory. It might take some time, but it's so worth it. Because this, rightly understood, this passage is a bomb to your soul that you desperately need. Commit these promises to memory so that when trials come, these truths return to you. Not the false promises that the world might have to offer. So our suffering is not worth comparing to the great glory that is coming. And that in our suffering, the Spirit intercedes for us according to our need and according to God's will. Those are our first two encouraging truths that we have as we suffer with Christ. Number three, everyone's favorite, all things work together for good for those who love God. For those who love God. Verses 28 through 30, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. Verse 28, probably one of the best known verses in all of scripture which usually means that it's probably also one of the most misapplied and misunderstood verses in all of Scripture. We can make pretty wall hangings out of it, so therefore we'll misapply it. People love to know that God's going to make it all better. That's all that matters. God's going to make it good. We'll be happy. That's all we have to trust in. But it leaves them feeling really empty when there's times in their life where God doesn't make it good in their eyes. Because if you don't truly understand that this is speaking to those who love God, you're not going to understand how this is applied and what the good is. We have to see that this is speaking to God's children. We're further encouraged in the certainty of this promise that starts off with, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Faith tells us that this is true, and it's certain. God works all things together for good for those who love him. It's another aspect that some, that some misunderstand because even if we have the first part down that we understand it's talking and encouraging God's children in their faith, sometimes we, we forget what the good is. What's he talking about? So he's going to work all things together for good. That means my circumstances are going to work out better. I'm going to get well. No, this is an eternal good that he's speaking about here, not any earthly comfort. 
The good referred to is, as the passage continues to unfold, it's conformity to Christ. It's being conformed into the image of God's Son. God is working all things in our lives to bring us closer and closer to this ultimate goal. He's making all things new. Part of that is redeeming us. Part of that is what we see as we go through this life. And that brings us such great encouragement because we know that God is sovereignly working all circumstances and situations in our lives ultimately for our greatest good. That means that there is nothing that can touch us that God isn't allowing in our lives to work for the purpose of conforming us more and more into the image of his son. Remember, Paul wasn't told that his thorn would go away, but that God's grace is sufficient, and that same truth is here. God tells us that for his children, he's working for our good. That doesn't always translate the way that we think it should sometimes, or the way that we would desire it best for us at this moment. This verse is a regular disappointment when wrongly applied, but it's a bomb for our soul when it is rightly understood. And as we see it, God, who controls all things, is sovereign and working together for our good to bring us more and more into the conformity of his son. In verses 29 and 30, explain that out. They flesh that out. Why those who love God can be so certain that all things work together for good. It's because it's been part of God's plan from eternity past. It's been part of his plan from the beginning. He begins in verse 29 and says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Paul's telling us that those whom God chose from eternity past, Ephesians 1 tells us, from before the foundations of the world. This is how God's been working. He chose them and he predestined or predetermined them to be conformed to Christ's image. He's been doing this from the very beginning. Nothing has ever or will ever frustrate God's plan. Nothing will ever or has ever frustrated God's plan. And from the beginning, he's been working miraculously and mysteriously in bringing about the redemption of his people. And he called them and he predetermined them to be conformed to Christ's image. And it's necessary for that redemption for all things to become new. Those ones who are predestined are also effectually called, as we see in verse 30. And those whom he predestined, he also called. 
And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So we see he's been working on this from eternity past. He's working on it now effectively in our lives as we see that call take place in our lives, leading to the justification that we've experienced. What does verse 1 say? But there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So we see his work in the past, in the present, in our lives, calling and justifying as part of the experience we've had. But his explanation is not quite done because those who are justified, it says in verse 30, those whom he justified, he also glorified. He also glorified. And that aspect, speaking to what's to come, Yet he puts it in the past tense, as if it's already happened. It's futuristic, but it's also something that we've tasted and experienced. In the here and now, because we are being transformed. We are being changed into the image of Christ. We've seen a change in our lives. Christians can look back and see who they were and who they are now. And there's a difference. You're not the same person. So we have a taste of the glorification to come. It's already but not yet fully realized. We are encouraged in knowing this and we know that this is true because God chose us from before the foundations of the world. And he's been working ever since to accomplish his purpose. God works all things for the ultimate good of being conformed to the image of Christ. Christian, that's what we're ultimately groaning for. It's not the end of our trial, but it's through the trial to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. That's what we really need. That's what we should desire. That's where our want should be. Happiness, peace, and safety in this world are not the ultimate goods that we are waiting for. They're nice, but it's conformity to Christ that brings lasting joy, true satisfaction, and real peace and contentment. So what do we do then? Hurting believer, we pray, and we pray earnestly for the suffering, if it be God's will to pass. But remember that in the suffering, God's using this in your life for the purpose for which he called you. And that's for his glory. I can't get away from not using what Thomas Watson would write. He wrote a little book about Romans 8.28. And he says, All things work together for good to them that love God. To know that nothing hurts the godly is a matter of comfort but to be assured that all things which fall out shall cooperate for their good, that their crosses shall be turned into blessings, that showers of affliction water the withering root of their grace and make it flourish more, this may fill their hearts with joy till they run over. And I hope as we've looked at this this morning that it's not only affirmed 
some head knowledge, but that it has refreshed your soul and encouraged your hearts to know these good truths. And it's much better to know and apply them in life, to take these truths with us. The Bible's full of good news. It is good news from beginning to end. And Romans 8 is definitely a great summary of that good news we have in Christ. We're no longer under condemnation. The life that we now live, we live in the power of the Spirit, and the Spirit testifies with us that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God. Heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him. And that's not to put a damper on the joy that we should experience in knowing that. It's to strengthen and encourage us. Because there's no comparison for the glory that's to come. Being in Christ means we are going to grow in grace and knowledge of God. And we are going to be conformed more and more into the image of Christ. He's transforming us from one degree of glory to another. It's good news. I left a small band of suffering pilgrims at the beginning of our message in dire straits, losing half their number. They didn't have a great harvest that first year, though they did have a first Thanksgiving. And they had made friends with some of the Indians who helped provide for that feast. They're commanded to go to the meeting house for three hours prior to the feast that would last about five days. Those pilgrims suffered greatly and must have been tempted to question the goodness of God. But in the midst of that great suffering, there were those who still trusted in his goodness. William Bradford whose own wife was one of the first to die, writes this about that grueling time. But it pleased God to visit us then with death daily and with so general a disease that the living were scarce able to bury the dead and the well not in any measure sufficient to tend the sick. William Bradford saw the suffering was part of God's perfect plan and he understood and believed that these sufferings they were undergoing were for the sake of Christ and they were not worth comparing with the glory that was to come soak up that good news Christian revel in the delights of this wonderful message as we join the apostle and we sing this wonderful hymn that he has at the end of Romans 8 we won't read it now but read verses 31 through 39 that victory we have in Christ for those who might be here that this is all foreign, how can you possibly rejoice in suffering? Maybe you've never heard of the gospel or the good news or been faced with the fact that this world isn't all that we have to hope in. If that's true of you, there are a number of people who would love to talk to you this morning. Any of the elders would be happy to people sitting next to you, in front of you, behind you. Come to one of us so that we can share with you the good news that we have rock-solid confidence in, that we know 
all things work together for good for those who love God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you for your word, for its truth, for the ways in which it comforts, encourages us, and bolsters our faith. And Lord, may we be edified and built up as we consider the wonderful truths that we've seen here this morning. May we remember that the suffering we face has nothing compared to the glory to come. That we're not left alone in the midst of our suffering, but we have the help of the Spirit. And Lord, we know that you are working all things for good for those who love you. We thank you and praise you for these truths, and we pray for your grace and your mercy and your help to remember them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.